What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, two writers on their personal experience of mental illness and their message of hope and healing. Horatio Clare is the author of Heavy Light, a journey through madness, mania and healing, in which he recounts his mental breakdown and how he was committed to a locked hospital ward. Alex Riley is a science journalist whose first book is A Cure for Darkness, the story of depression and how we treat it, in which he explains how through his efforts to understand his own depression, he discovered the often surprising history of mental health care over the past 2,000 years. Our speakers sat down together to discuss their expertise and experiences in a recent online event. Let's join them now in conversation. Welcome, uh, Alex, very much indeed. Um, Thank you. Start by asking, perhaps we should both do this, if we might uh, share, as it were. So I'll punt. I identify as somebody who has had a series of breakdowns for what I now realise are explicable reasons. Uh, I have a bipolar diagnosis, um, Mm -hmm. which I reject uh, and, and has no handle on me. I am, however, definitely seasonally effective. And I got a very clear and strong set of triggers, uh, which include cannabis, lying, um, overstress, uh, not enough sleep. And so I need to avoid those things. And the summer is my natural sort of high time and the winter my natural low. May I ask you about diagnosis, identification and how you are? I don't really have a diagnosis. I kind of call it depression, but it's multifaceted. It has you know, elements of bipolar and it's recurrent, it kind of comes in, in waves. It's got some elements of sort of anxiety to it, um, maybe a bit of autism. I kind of see this as sort of a, a, a kind of dimensional view into how, you know, my mental health can take a, a turn for the worse. So I don't really have a diagnosis. I've kind of been major depressive, but I don't really think that's a, a label that helps me or even psychiatry bipolar i don't think that's true i don't have the as hypomanic as i think i would need to to have that and like you i think it is seasonal but that could be because of the seasons but it's also interesting my uh my mother had depression around christmas time so i don't know whether that's some sort of imprint on on my own emotional sort of pattern so yeah that's why i kind of understand it as this sort of depression with bits added on and how am i now uh i've just gone back onto medication because i was 
uh, suicidal recently. So <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it can spin pretty quickly um, down, and uh, yeah, I've kind of the triggers can be unknown for me. I don't really know why that I, I have these sort of periods, but. I can manage them with, you know, different approaches, whether it's medication or things that I can do such as exercise and what I eat and just generally who I see and all these different elements of my life. That was really interesting when you used in talking about your mother's sort of Christmas depression is whether it left a sort of imprint on your pattern of feeling. I must say that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, my father, we would now say was a sort of a melancholic, um, rhythmically depressed. Um, It used to link to life events, but it would also come and go. And I'm sure I picked up like some of that almost kind of emotional weather from him. But it's true, isn't it, that the search for biomarkers um, in depression and mania has proved entirely fruitless. Like science can't identify, can't look at one of somebody and say, you're going to be depressed. There isn't a gene for it, as far as we know, or at least not one specific to mental illness. No, I mean, there's no biomarker for any diagnosis in in psychiatry. I think that's largely because there isn't one. I think they're all interrelated. I think if you look at the studies in schizophrenia and bipolar, there's a huge amount of overlap in their genetic makeup, but it's not a single gene or a single receptor or a single dopamine um, neurotransmitter. There are thousands of genes that might you know, develop a risk factor that are then shaping people towards a certain mental illness or mental disease throughout, through their adulthood. So for example, my cousin has schizophrenia, I have depression, and I'm just kind of, I've been fascinated about how our trajectories can be so different with both being a mood disorder and a psychotic disorder and how our treatments are so widely different. Like I can be at home treated with antidepressants and other uh, medication and psychotherapy. And he spent five years in an institution and was, you know, bombarded with pills and injected with all kinds of sedatives. So yeah, I have an interest in the broader sort of patterns in, in mental illness. And I think once we have that approach, once psychiatry has that, which is, you know, happening now, trying to kind of move away from this very narrow-minded diagnostic approach and seeing them more broadly, I think we'll find biomarkers that could be more related to mental illness, such as, you know, sleep patterns or, you know, behavioral things, emotions, thoughts that we don't really have a, a grip on right now. Yes, it does ask serious questions, doesn't it, of uh, psychiatry as a science? It, 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 we're talking, turning to a, a cure for darkness. Um, can you talk about your thought process going towards the conception and planning of the book? What was your, what were you up to? What was your undertaking? Uh, so I wrote an article in 2017 about my experience with mental illness and being a, a science writer. So I was writing about, like you say, corals and dinosaurs and all these fascinating things. I kind of traveled to rainforest in Puerto Rico to try and find a frog that hadn't been heard for 30 years and that sort of stuff. But I was still kind of taken with these sort of recurrent depressions. And I wrote a, a piece um, describing my sort of, you know, how I managed these two elements of my life. And that sort of then got quite a big response and had agents asking me if I wanted to kind of develop the ideas and eventually it turned into, yeah, this curiosity driven sort of approach to depression. Like what is, you know, where do I stand 
globally and historically in terms of my family history of depression, rather than just writing a memoir, which is very much, you know, what is my experience and um, how do these drugs affect me? I wanted to kind of look outwards and sort of take uh, a cross-cultural sort of approach and then also historical, like what treatments may have we have forgotten or which treatments, you know, are coming back into trend and what can these tell us about the future of psychiatry and mental health care. That, so I found the memoir aspects incredibly moving and the cross-cultural ones fascinating. Could you talk about how uh, mental illness or, or depression have been seen in, in, in different uh, cultures and, and, and regarded with different approaches? Yeah, so depression is this sort of like shape-shifting illness. Like it, we call it depression because we focus on the low mood, you know, a depression in mood. But around the world, that's not the the sort of key term that's used. So I traveled to Zimbabwe to sort of meet some of the really sort of um, grassroots approaches to dealing with the very high burden of mental illness in low income countries and depression there, there wasn't a word for it when the psychiatrists were trying to kind of even just find people who might need basic psychological support. And so they kind of went through, uh, they surveyed uh, people in the community of in Harare, the capital city, and found that people were describing it. They just have a different term called kafungi sisa, which means thinking too much. Uh, so that really kind of gets to the ruminative anxiety element of depression. And so when they had that term, then people could immediately like, oh yeah, you know, I do, you know, have that, or I do struggle with that. And then they can develop treatments to kind of help these people. In India, this it's more of a physical, like psychosomatic illness. It's it's, the translation is basically nerves or tension. So you become very tense. And I think there's more of a appreciation for the body rather than just the mind being this sort of separate thing in, in Indian sort of like Ayurvedic medicine and things like that. So around the world, we have this sort of different terms for the same illness, but people kind of, of culture sort of focus on one particular element that resonates with their language and how they sort of represent themselves with their bodies. It made so much sense to me that thinking too much, that's exactly my experience with depression was that it wouldn't stop, you know, it wouldn't yeah. stop when I tried to sleep and, and that. Um, and then you look at, you, 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 as well as going sideways, as it were, in, into the different aspects of the world and different cultures, you also look at it chronologically. And I was thinking, you know, if either of us had been you know, uh, in the anatomy of melancholy, the, 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 the understanding, the language use, which is absolutely fundamental, it seems to me, and, and the treatments clearly would have been very different. Would it um, be fair to ask you to take us on, on a, in terms of Western medicine, a, a rough trajectory through uh, the understanding and treatment of um, what we're calling depression or mental illness? Sure. So I start with the ancient Greeks, as most people do when you kind of talk anything scientific, you know, the ancient Greeks had something to say or, you know, written something that's still used today. So ancient Greeks, they thought of uh, depression as being related to a black humor, so a kind of substance in the body, uh, black bile, uh, they called it, which is actually literally translates as melancholy. And they thought this was in excess in different parts of the body. So you could have excess black bile in the brain and that would cause a particular type of melancholy you'd have it in your gut and that would cause a particular type of melancholy that's they called it uh, i think the gassy disease i think it was kind of like a, a lot of flatulence involved and sort of the uh gastrointestinal that sort of constipation that can come with severe depressions and so that kind of made that kind of was like the foundation of what came afterwards of you know i think it was 
for centuries that basic idea wasn't changed even when black bile wasn't discovered in the body so even that this thing wasn't found by some of the greatest anatomists they still believed that depression was caused by an excess of this thing that doesn't exist so it was so fixated upon that yeah it just it just kept on going up, up until i think around the 17th 18th century um but in that time the treatment for depression was often you're in the community or you're sort of you know kept by your family the responsibilities on the family then you have certain asylums popping up from about the 13th century um onwards and then that really becomes the way that people are treated in you know the industrial revolution a lot of mental illness is sort of burgeoning because of um just the work that's going on a lot of poverty inequalities and just the general sort of work that's involved a lot of death people kind of suffering from grief so these asylums pop up and the first ones are kind of like the quite positive you know this you know people go in and have this support that they need from people who are, are trained to kind of look after them and just have this basic sort of care away from their stresses of life but asylums then become so successful that they just become overburdened and they have thousands of inpatients who just have no care they're just abandoned or chained in some elements and so yeah the asylum was kind of where you would probably go if you had you know a severe depression or you know bipolar or you would be treated within within your family and it wouldn't be spoken about and then as i kind of write in the book the 20th century uh, well late 19th centuries and when we have you know a lot of the different approaches that become lobotomies or ect followed by antidepressants and then all the psychotherapies sort of emerge in the 1950s 1960s and all of these have like sort of lessons for today is is what i kind of like took away from this sort of broader approach to depression what you're saying is so resonant i mean so what's happened to me was i had a, a full-on psychotic breakdown uh, at the end of 2018 um and it moved from hypermania uh, which you will know but perhaps not everybody is sort of racing mood and elevated thoughts and optimism and sort of fast speech and hypersexuality and a kind of inflated ego through to mania which is the same thing but worse and into full-on psychosis which sounds i mean before i had it i would have thought that psychosis meant you went around sort of cutting people up or something but in fact i lived in a parallel world in which people were all part of a huge and fairly benign conspiracy of which I was a sort of prime mover uh, in the background and that I had to complete ritualistic tasks. Um, it could be arranging cigarette butts or listening to uh, Today in Parliament um, or getting stoned when John Burko spoke in order to help influence the outcome of Brexit, uh, which I, I regret failing at quite so comprehensively, although you will admit I did hold it off for a little while. Uh, uh, to the point where I ran my car off the road for what seemed like very good reasons and it was all to do with MI6 and aliens and I these things were entirely real to me started as a game as a child's fantasy and then the fantasy just took over and finally my beloved ex and friends were able to get me properly assessed um, I talked my way out of mental hospital the first time I was there but the second time uh, and somebody called an AMP which is an approved mental health professional who's a social worker uh, for anybody watching or listening who covers your area and can be found and contacted with a bit of diligence uh, and they give you an assessment along with two doctors 
uh, and I had the doctors fooled, but not the social worker, thankfully. And so she sectioned me, uh, although they don't like to use that vocabulary, they use detained. And I was taken to a hospital in Wakefield under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act, which is a phenomenally powerful piece of legislation. I basically then, uh, all of my rights were dependent on my responsible clinician, who was a psychiatrist, And there I was given two doses of quetiapine or quetiapine. I'm never sure of the pronunciation because I'm dyslexic. And uh, that drained the madness out of me in about 60 hours. They said you presented as sane in 60 hours. And I was there for about two weeks. And they released me back into the community after sort of you do trial runs home and back to make sure you can and you're willing to. And, you know, they said, you really want, if you want to get out, you need to take these pills. And they gave me a choice of lithium, sodium valproate or uh, aripiprazole. Uh, And I was made to make the decision, which struck me as weird then and outrageous later. And then honest, it turns out, because, of course, most, well, no psychiatrist knows exactly how their pills work. Um, as the one who wasn't responsible for me admitted and the one who therefore had the most time to give me. But I was very cowardly. And to those people taking medication, I admire you and in no way advocate coming off by yourself. But I was scared of it. And I was unsettled by the fact the psychiatrists couldn't really explain how they worked. And I felt that I hadn't been given any assessment time by those doctors, 15 minutes. Uh, I thought a psychiatrist was somebody like Anthony Clare, you know, on the radio when I was a kid who actually asked you questions for an hour or so. But no. And so I started digging and I came to the conclusion that I was seasonally effective, uh, cannabis psychotic and in dire need of proper therapy. And the hardest line in my book is between those who can afford therapy and those who can't, who those who can afford to jump the queue. And I got a loan off my dad, I know a gift, and he paid for 10 sessions. And I was dead lucky in that Rebecca found a wonderful therapist. And we did EMDR, which changed my life, along with a lot of behavioural and circumstantial and familial changes. And so although the science says that I should have had another breakdown in three years since, I haven't. I haven't even been remotely close to... um, I've been sort of high mood, definitely elevated mood and definitely low mood, but none of it seems mysterious to me. My triggers seem to be clear. So that's where I am. And the second half of Heavy Light is an investigation into what exactly was going on, how we treat it, what psychiatry knows and doesn't know. And I found it eye-opening and outraging. You spoke really interestingly in one of your interviews somebody asks you about the kind of the role of anger and how you felt and you said that you did feel angry about the mechanisms of um, diagnosis and prescription and over prescription but that you also felt that anger wouldn't help anybody can you talk about your relationship with those things well my relationship is uh i'm constantly coming on and off medication because you know it's um something I don't want to be on, but unfortunately that's the one thing that I think is allowing me to be stable and to be safe. You, you mentioned, you know, you, your partner was worried about you and, you know, helps get you sectioned on, on my side. I'm not manic, but I'm suicidal and she's terrified when I go out the door uh, because she's just expecting that call that, you know, that I've done it. And so she's, you know, been very close to to making that same call and so for me 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think we know much about these drugs. I've been offered lithium just as you did. And, you know, we have very different experiences. But I do find that antidepressants, different types of them, allow me to live a semi-functional life. Yeah, someone asked me on a previous podcast, it's like, which one, if you took away, would you feel, you know, the most, the loss most, and it would be, yeah, my medication. Psychotherapy, I think, I, I would say that psychotherapy is essential for understanding and, you know, digging up some things that might be related to the triggers. But unfortunately for me, I think the medication is something that I have to rely on because those traumas and those sort of past experiences, there's just perhaps, and maybe I'm not there yet as well. Like I'm, I'm, I'm 31. I might, you know, find that with extended psychotherapy, I, I, I come off medication. That's, that is my hope. But yeah, I think we do. What worries me is I think we do perhaps not over prescribe, but we give these drugs away so willingly and they do come with real side effects. They do, you know, it's very difficult to come off them. Sometimes I've come off them three times and the first time it was the most difficult and I did it over three months and it still, it still was like stepping back into depression for a while. The second time I did it quicker and it actually worked out pretty well, but you know, there is that risk that you might not be able to come off them for a very long time. And so for doctors just to give away something that's a very powerful psychoactive drug, just because someone's got maybe kind of like a mild depression or anxiety, I think that's absolutely like, yeah, it should be, it should be more of a, let's try these options first. And then if these don't work, like we have, you know, psychotherapy, which we're not providing enough, um, people get maybe six sessions of CBT in eight months, like that's criminal. And maybe, you know, integrating something like exercise, diet, uh, mindfulness, these sort of apps that might be more useful for people's mental health. And if all those things fail and you're still depressed, then yes, I think, you know, medication might be something. And if you're in a critical position and you can't function, then yes. But I think those steps aren't being taken with just go to a GP, they give you a pill and you might be stuck on that pill for two years. I think it's so brave because of course, you know, I, I know in theory people taking medication and, you know, I have... But to actually talk to somebody who has your depth of understanding and involvement with it, I mean, it's it's absolutely mighty. I was frightened of aripiprazole. I didn't like the side effects. I mean, I, I agreed to take it just to get out of the hospital. And then um, Rebecca's feeling was that if I didn't continue to take it, you know, I, I, she was going to just end it. Um, and we didn't want to break up that way. And so I lied about taking uh, aripiprazole for a long time because... I knew I was fine and I was fine, but you know, it's all very well. And so it wasn't until I had a conversation with Yasmin Ishak who runs an open dialogue service. And she said, you know, I said, what would you do Yasmin though? Supposing, cause she said like many therapists that bipolar was no use to her as a diagnosis. And I said, but Yasmin, supposing I came to you and I said, I believe that, you know, uh, I, I'm being watched by my six, uh, I'm in league with aliens and I'm due to marry Kylie Minogue. She said, I would say to you that that was a completely normal, in fact, sane reaction to the amount of pressure that you're under and the little amount that you've slept and the little amount that you've eaten and the amount of cows that you're smoking. I would say that was, she would normalize. So that was the first thing. And then when she's, when I confessed about lying about taking medication, she said, so many people do. 
and and the weight off my shoulders just to know that I, mean, I wasn't alone in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder about your experience. So you've taken your, your, your as a journalist, but also as an author, you have a public platform. I, I've, I've come across people like Ahmed Hankir, who's a, a writer, performer, activist, frontline psychiatrist. He said his patients experience the stigma as, as, as worse in some cases than the, the condition. What is your relationship to stigma? Do you, did you fear it and have you experienced it? With treatment, yeah. I think it's easier to talk about depression. I think suicide is one that I can't openly discuss. And that's a main feature of my, yeah, my mental illness is this, I think, that in itself is something you don't want to discuss because people just switch off. You know, they don't want to talk about uh, uh, someone taking their own life. It's just too painful. But I think we do need to normalize that we're having these thoughts. And, you know, for me, you know, having these plans and these, you know, so I, I nearly took my life in 2017, but because I was open about it with my partner, she actually kind of preempted me. She knew that I was what I had planned and she actually taken action so i think my approach has always been as open as possible with the people around me uh and you know that that was difficult like when i first started doing it now it's more routine but i'd say yeah suicide is still a very difficult topic to broach especially with family because they you know it's it's painful for them to even consider that but i do it anyway so (laughs) they're gonna have to yeah get used to it and Stigma around treatments, I think, yeah, that's that's true of all treatments, whether it's psychotherapy. People think that there's still an idea that, you know, you you should be able to deal with your own problems without a trained therapist. Although a lot of people, you know, are very open about having a therapist now. And with antidepressants, there's just this, yeah, huge debate of whether they work or not. Or, you know, the recent book by Johan Hari where he says, you know, if you take an antidepressant, you, you're a machine with broken parts. It's just that sort of rhetoric that really sort of, yeah, denigrates someone whose experiences that these, these things have probably saved a lot of lives. They're not, you know, amazing drugs. I think the, they may work in around 50% of people, whereas the placebo effect can account for about 35 to 40% of that. So the, you know, the margins are very small, but clinical trials only include a certain patient selection anyway. They don't include people who are suicidal. They don't include people who are very severely depressed because they can't be part of a trial just because of it. Yeah, yeah. So we, you're picking out a very niche group of people and they're probably, you know, mostly white people, if you're kind of talking about people uh, from universities in the West. So yeah, when we have these trials, we're kind of talking about a specific population with major depression and major depression is a diagnosis that's very strict. You got to have these symptoms for two weeks or more. I don't fit that model. Like they don't even, they don't even mention anxiety. Like, and they don't, and anxiety is core to every, you know, mental illness, but they want to have that as a separate group as generalized anxiety disorder. So it's another one. And this, this whole, you know, the DSM, um, I think psychiatry is moving away from that with different approaches, which is really exciting because it's, yeah, I think it's stymied the whole like treatment and understanding for three decades now. 
Yes, I would completely agree with you based on, on, on research and anecdotal conversations. So lots of people know this, but some won't. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which was published by the American Psychiatric Association. And it effectively puts psychiatry on a medical white coat prescribing pills footing. Uh, and it's underwritten partly by the insurance industry because the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is a descriptive volume. In other words, uh, it describes categories and then fits you into those categories, uh, that reassures your insurer who then pays your medication. And it has a horribly unhealthy and long association with the pharmaceutical industry. People who draw up the uh, categories, uh, about 80% of them for DSM-5 had associations with the pharmaceutical industry, very lucrative ones. But it is the most powerful tool of Western psychiatry. In Britain, we use the International Classification of Diseases, but it's just as effectively, it's an intellectual offshoot of the same system. And the problem is, I mean, so the core problem that Heavy Light ends ends up identifying is that as Alex has been describing, we suffer as uh, intensely as individuals, but we're sort of ham-fistedly treated as categories. Uh, And my contention is that nobody's condition is the same as anyone else's. And I was terrified of of stigma. I thought when I wrote Heavy Light, I'm going to be the writer who went mad and was sent to the loony bin. He's that guy who was crazy. He's crazy. I'm coming out about being sectioned seemed like a big deal, but my experience has been entirely other. I've never you know, had more work. People, my students, my university employers, the BBC seem completely unbothered by the fact that I had a breakdown. Uh, uh, one of my friends said, H, you know, we've always known you were crazy kind of thing, and that, that's fine. And there was, and is an honourable place in uh, British society, certainly, and, and I hope in all for the eccentric. I mean, I, the politicisation of the language really got to me. So in the end, I started thinking of it all as degrees of madness you know insomnia is definitely a madness it feels like that uh, as anybody who's had it will know anxiety depression all of them um eating disorders um certainly psychosis is your pure yeah. sort of movie made for the hollywood madness and, and i use it because in in a way i it helps me because i think madness is a part of human life you know it, when we start taking away triggers and looking at influences uh, and I, I suppose Alex, that's the thing that makes me feel most pain for you in a way is that when you say that you, you know for you it's not really identifiable when these things come in at you they come in at you out of a clear blue sky because I've had long periods or long but intense periods generally in the winter of suicidal thoughts um, but you know, seasonal affective disorder is really quite well understood. Uh, it's not, yeah. it's, you know, what I love about this field is where the mysteries aren't. The problem is in, on the treatment side is that it's a rat's nest. So I've been yeah. working with psychiatrists and they're really in a bad way because they know the DSM is fairly useless uh, in terms of getting outcomes. The, the system they're in pushes them towards prescription and diagnosis. They watch young people Google themselves, identify with the diagnosis, and then kind of build their lives and mishaps around that diagnosis. Uh, and yet they know that, you know, were they able to say, because a psychiatrist is so powerful to the person sitting opposite them, just in terms of influence, you know, I'm telling you, Horatio, you need to go to a museum every week. You need to walk on grass twice a day. You need three meals a day. You need to read this book 
So there's a wonderful book. It's called Brain Changer, Felice Jacka, from the Food and Mood Centre in Australia. And they've worked out, you know, that really nutrition absolutely can change your, not just your mental balance, but your IQ. Um, yeah, which is in my book, by the way. Just want to flag that. Felice is, a, Felice is an amazing researcher and her work is... So guess how long a psychiatrist spends studying nutrition in the course of their medical degree? A module. At one afternoon, according to the psychiatrist that I talked to. So not even a module. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on your point of, you know, stigma and psychosis, I think, and this may be wrong, but I think you're in some way privileged that yours is so discreet that you know it's related to cannabis and this sort of stress. And then, you know, you can avoid those things or cannabis. I'm just thinking of psychosis when we start talking about schizophrenia and with my cousin who had it started when he was about 17, starts hearing voices, thinks he's God. I think he thought he was Zeus first and then he became Jesus Christ and, you know, everyone was below him and he became aggressive sometimes. But what I can add to this discussion is the stigma is still there for schizophrenia and chronic psychosis. But I think books like yours can provide an insight that there is a spectrum there that Everyday people can often have psychotic experiences, whether it's drug-related or otherwise. And what's exciting about psychiatry right now is this, in terms of schizophrenia and psychosis, is this appreciation of just how important that first episode is. So when someone starts hearing voices or has um, paranoia, there's a lot of adolescent sort of care going on now, especially in Australia and Ireland, and some fantastic sort of centres where adolescents can be can go to and those voices can be you know rationalized or even just listened to rather than just trying to block them and shut them away because i think of my cousin and his trajectory and being institutionalized for so long what if we had a psychiatry that appreciates that people hear voices and it's not a psychosis it's not always something that needs to be just trodden down with antipsychotics and that's what gives me hope in this field is that model for early intervention is now spreading to bipolar, to depression, to anxiety. So really focusing on adolescence when I think it's like 75% of mental illness in adults started before the age of 25, your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25, 30. So, and we're pumping these, historically pumping these um, people with medications that might change their brain structure. And just because you know, they're different, you know, my cousin would be, yeah, considered mad and his, his view of the world is, is completely against what other people will experience. But what he did, he liked best was walking for miles and miles and miles and listening to his, his own voices. And, you know, and then he was shut away in an institution and he couldn't leave his cell. And this is, you know, unfortunately common practice. So I think when we're talking about stigma, it's worthwhile just, you know, schizophrenia and people, when we kind of think about people on the street who might be, you know, talking to themselves, we still have that stigma as that's someone who's different from me. Whereas I think we're all part of this, you know, this mental illness. It's just, we've been shaped down different paths. Yeah. yeah. I also think that, you know, it's that walk in my shoes, isn't it? I, I don't think anybody would have not had some sort of breakdown if they'd done exactly what I'd done for the two months running up to to the breakdown. But, you know, just to, yeah. you know, it inputs lack of sleep, the psychological uh, pressures and things.
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. Season 3 of No Bullshit Leadership, brought to you by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas Creative, is out now. In this straight-talking podcast, Chris Hurst, global CEO of Havas Creative, is joined each week by a leader from the world of business, sport, politics, or culture. We've had some wonderful guests on season three, including former White House Director of Communications, Anthony Scaramucci, the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Kalaf, and the entrepreneur, Sharmadine Reed. Search No Bullshit Leadership wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of season three now, and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on season four. As I was going to put to you some of the questions that have arrived in the chat, here's one. It's from Paolo, and he asks, what do you think of the theory that depression can be identified or linked to inflammation of the body? Yes, so I spend a a good chunk of the book on that. I think it's pretty, yeah, pretty confident that I think around a third or a quarter of depressions can be linked to like inflammatory syndrome or some sort of inflammation in the body. And so there's some interesting trials going on now to find out if anti-inflammatories might work. But what we do know, if you do decrease inflammation in the body, that not only helps people into remission from depression just without anything else. It also makes other treatments more effective. So inflammation in the body can block antidepressants from working. And if you can reduce it with through exercise or through diet, then 
you can even make the treatments we already have more effective. So I think inflammation is really key to understanding where depression might come from for a large part of the population and also how we might be able to treat it and make it more treatable for other, other with other treatments that we have. So, yeah, and some really interesting historical parts of the book where if you give people pro-inflammatories for cancer, uh, so this is what happened in the 1980s, I think I mentioned in, in Finland, they started to realize that a lot of these patients developed a, a basically a mirror or the exact same sort of copy as depression. They were just given these very high pro-inflammatory drugs to wipe out the cancer, but they, a, a large percentage of them, I think about 80% developed what would be considered clinical depression. And that then kind of tagged people onto maybe this is related that if we increase inflammation, people become depressed. And yeah, I think it's a really fascinating and hopeful part of where psychiatry might be going. And all, I think inflammation is linked to everything. Like it's not just depression. It's just, it really is central to how we understand health. This is potentially the most radical turning point in treatment for a long time, isn't it? If they get a handle on it, because just in terms of the numbers that you're talking about, the percentages in which it might play a role or does play a role. Yeah. And, you know, we all, we all live quite unhealthy lives. Like we're not the, you know, especially in, in the UK and the US is, you know, high rates of obesity and sedentary lifestyles. You know, I sit at a desk all day and type and probably don't get enough exercise or sunlight. And so I think inflammation, if we can find a way to sort of reduce, reduce that, I think it's yeah beneficial for a lot of different health systems. Thank you so much for that question, Paolo, for that wonderful answer, Alex. Sarah very kindly says, um, do you think antidepressants are over-prescribed in our society? And if so, what would the alternative be given the financial pressures on the NHS? Like I said, yeah, I think they they are over-prescribed, but I think what I like to think of it is they're probably prescribed to the wrong people. So I think a lot of the people who are depressed don't reach out for help and they're not getting the prescriptions. But then the people who do reach out for help probably didn't need antidepressants. So I think Overprescribed might be yeah a confusing term, but yeah, like I said in the, earlier, I think I'm concerned that they're being given to people who would benefit from other other uh, options. But yeah, that the cost of of giving people access to exercise or access to healthy food is obviously much harder than giving them a um, a pill that's run through its patent and the pharmaceutical companies can just churn them out for, for nothing. So what I would like to see is more investment in these alternative approaches in mental health care, because we still spend very little on mental health, even though they're such a big driver for not only morbidity, morbidity from poor mental health, but also they, inc- they make every other sort of, disease, physical disease worse. So they have related to cardiovascular disease, related to sort of dementia. So I think we need to increase how much we invest in our mental health. And yeah, if, if, if that's something that we can do, I would look into yeah more holistic approaches, exercise, changing people's diets. And um, so even like prescribing a personal trainer or more like activities that get people out of the house and and rather than just giving them pills but that is hugely idealistic and yeah it's it's just 
Yes, I think I, there is a role for tragic idealism. So Calderdale, my um, so in the second half of the book, I interview the people who sectioned me and my nurses, uh, all the way up to chief executive of Calderdale NHS Trust, and then of Calderdale Council, and then all the way to the local MP. And what I would say about this is clearly they are overprescribed. I mean, the nice so National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidelines say you should not be offered, no one should be offered antidepressants without therapy. And clearly we don't have the number of therapists that that would require. So we should be aware that we're already in breach of our own guidelines. Uh, young people of my acquaintance and students are offered uh, antidepressants at the drop of a hat. I was, I was offered it just you know, yeah, to butt in. I was offered citalopram before anything. And I refused it. Only later did I sort of go, as I write in the book, I go on, go on to antidepressants, which was the right thing to do. But to be offered it immediately just seems so wrong. Radical treatments. I mean, so in Grenoble, uh, in southeastern France, they removed all advertising from the entire city. Even if you owned a shop, you couldn't have an advert in the window bigger than a piece of A4. And they did it on the grounds of child mental health. And it's fascinating when you go because at first you can't work out why the whole place seems so calm and chilled and what we call mentally healthy. And it's because you're not being bombarded, lied to and manipulated from you know every commercial surface. Um, so when you think then you know, mobile phone use, the way in which the internet is effectively like a weaponized version of the old Daily Mail, which is supposed to leave you uh, angry and confused, um, those things clearly aren't helping. It really worries me that we give away antidepressants because we've put the money there rather than in taking the time for a clinician to say, right, let's just run through your life circumstances. So your girlfriend drops you, your parents aren't happy, you're living at home, you haven't got any money and you're finding school really hard. So is there something wrong with you that, or, you know, that, or, or is it a disease that we need to treat medication or are these life circumstances that would make anybody miserable and what can we do to address them which is where we get to you with social prescribing um and there clearly is a, a a huge problem there but i do think it's better understood thanks to people like you alex and to people sharing and realizing that I mean, my contention really is that you know, in a lot of cases as i think you're outlining medication is prescribed to treat symptoms but the causes are left unaddressed. So that, those were the thoughts that I would offer on this. Michaela asks if we think depression is a disease of modernity or if it's always existed. I mean, clearly your book is a refutation uh, of the idea that it's a disease of modernity. But I would ask, Alex, do you think that we're suffering in certain kind of era-specific, cultural-specific ways at the moment? And I'd link this to a question about the lockdown um, and what happened to people. James asks, uh, what about your own and the mental health of others during lockdown? That's a good question about whether it's changed culturally through time. It's kind of wrapping two elements of the book together. Um, I think this would be more pure speculation than anything, but I think it, depression as we understand it today, and it's more of an anxiety disorder largely, which is why a lot of the drugs for anxiety work with depression. So SSRIs and minor tranquilizers. I think that's the sort of syndrome of modernity where we have an anxiety that becomes a sense of hopelessness and that sense of hopelessness becomes the sort of the sort of black of, of depression where you know you lose all motivation so i think that would be the most common sort of experience for depression today whereas looking back historically if we go back you know centuries or even millennia to you know where it was melancholia i think that we're talking about a very severe form of depression that was probably 
leading people to be institutionalized or to be um, uh, abandoned by their families or hidden away or you know chained or anything like that. I think melancholia was seen as quite a severe, almost like a madness state that was, yeah, a, a few people would really sort of sympathize or be able to kind of see themselves in those shoes. So I think, yeah, we've always had depression, but I think how we, the term depression has changed a lot over history. And today depression can mean anything. It can mean anything from, you know, very minor sort of low mood to people who are catatonic in psychiatric wards and given ECT because nothing else has worked. And then you go into like psychotic depression, which is, you know, something that responds very well to ECT and, these delusions are almost sort of the same as, you know, your manic version, but, you know, with a depressive tinge of, you know, their bodies are rotten, they've sinned and they've kind of committed this horrendous crime, whereas none of them have done anything. They've just, you know, have very severe depression. So yeah, it's, it's uh, a term that can be used for anything. It's kind of like a wastebasket of, of psychiatry, I think, which is unfortunate because a lot of people kind of label themselves to be, have depression to then get help but i don't think that's often the best way to frame how they experience mental illness so yes exactly um it's interesting isn't it, in different cultures so I, I came i was told a story recently of a man from west africa who was a revered figure in his community and uh, met uh, a traveling british woman and uh, moved uh, back to britain and was quite soon after that banged up and he was given a diagnosis of schizophrenia and the fact was that he heard voices but in his community and in his setting that was a thing which people admired and was given space like your dear cousin the idea of him walking like he'd actually found his therapy hadn't he before they uh, and so in that, that, the cultural context just changes. And it also made me think of, um, I was teaching at a university in, in the Northwest a few years ago, and we had a wave of anxiety among the students. Um, and it, when we sort of looked hard at it, a lot of it was to do with the fact that they saw the modern life as a kind of glass cliff with them uh, at the bottom and their chances, their life chance at the bottom, uh, and everybody else, you know, from their tutors onwards at the top. And they, they talked about letting down their parents because they couldn't see them doing as well as their parents had done, you know. And it made me think that we can, you know, what a good life is uh, and what, what value is and what meaning is also needs to be reconfigured uh, because none of it makes sense. And, and so that's my experience of lockdown was that I spent much more time with my wonderful family. And I was very lucky because we live in the Yorkshire Moors, so it was great. But I thought I spent lots of time thinking about about blessings. I'm a great one for not counting my blessings when I'm happy in the summer and just running forward looking for more of them like a kind of mad hungry ghost as Tibetan Buddhism would put it. But instead I, you know, and I couldn't travel as a travel writer. So I sat and thought about the places that I'd been. And it was a rich and wonderful experience of that, you know, realization of good fortune. And my other experience of lockdown was that people I would never have expected to talk about their mental health started talking about it. So people at the BBC, my former bosses, uh, very successful dear friends would suddenly use the phrase, my mental health. And you'd think, God, I had no idea you had any concept that that was something, you know, uh, 
and I, the only thing I worry about with that is that it may be niche. Um, you know, it's the other really hard line in my book is obviously I'm middle class, uh, articulate, used to dealing with the police and with authority as a journalist. I, you know, I welcome it. I'm not scared of them at all. And so uh, Rebecca, who's very well connected because her sister's high up in the NHS, they really struggled to get me the treatment that I needed. And when I interviewed the chief executive of the clinical commissioning group, he said when he started, there were about 25 pathways to care. And there are now 2,500. They're thinking about employing people to help people navigate the different pathways. So what I would say to anybody who is in trouble or knows people who are, is that you need to shout and make a fuss because the resources are there. Uh, It's just that they're disproportionately accessed by people like us, I suspect. And so you're much more likely to end up in A&E and you're much more likely to be sectioned if you're poor, not white, not privileged, um, and not a great communicator. And that's just the way it is. And it's it's a scandal and a shame on our society. But it, And the NHS hates it and regrets it. But the fact is, you need to shout. And the other thing I would say would be, you know, if you know someone who is in trouble, like you, you know, Alex, if were you to get in that position, you, your partner is exactly right. You know, sectioning, for me, was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It made me change the way because I'd sort of skated along like, you know, my mental illness was a wave that was always chasing me that would sometimes catch me. But actually, uh, when it really catches you, I mean, I woke up one morning in, and I said out loud, right, OK, you're in a mental hospital in Wakefield under Section 2. And that was a real uh, change of life, at the beginning of a change of life. And the other thing that really helped me was I went to this wonderful woman, Yasmin, who runs Open Dialogue, Open Dialogue has stunning effects. It basically talks not just your problems out, but what you're going through with your network. So your partner, your family, the people you live with, your closest friend, your whatever. A peer supporter who's been there before, like somebody like me who's been sectioned, say, and an Open Dialogue practitioner. And particularly with first instance, first episode psychosis and schizophrenia, they have stunning results. It's a life changer and it is growing. But I said, Jasmine, the fact is I've Googled the hell out of this. You know, the BBC trained me to Google and to read. I looked at all the research papers. There's no cure. And she said, no, there isn't a cure. It's about healing. And that has really helped me. It's been even more helpful than therapy was this conception that, you know, it's a rough road and it's a journey. But as a travel writer, I can understand that. I understand that journeys have reversals and that things go horribly wrong. But, you know, the the idea of progress in it and hope in it are the main things. And Alex, you've clearly found methods to hope uh, for yourself. I wonder, with your experiences, um, when you face the future, and I'm, I'd like to know about your next book, how do you see it? Is it, is it a fearful place? Do you, do you expect things to come that you can't cope with? Or do you think that you have enough knowledge and tools and help and support? I mean, being a depressive is kind of having a split personality. So you asked me one day today, I'm feeling a bit brighter and I think that there is hope another day. I'd say that there's no point of doing anything and, you know, complete despair. And, um, yeah, I'd rather not be here. And, but today I can say that, yeah, I think, um, you know, I wrote a book about depression while being depressed for, you know, months in between. I think that's something that provides me with some, you know, hope that this isn't something that's completely going to debilitate I, with the help of psychotherapy and different sort of elements of my life that I changed, a loving partner and yeah, medication that I did 
produce this thing over four years, it has to be said, but still. And the future for me is, yeah, just continue to maybe write in this field. And yeah, I think I also need to go back to the lockdown question because I didn't answer that, but I, we, we had our first child during lockdown. So it's been a, yeah, a very niche experience and it was very lovely, even though I, I haven't been completely stable, uh, having a baby around for lockdown was just, uh, incredible. Now she's 18 months and walking around and talking and shouting at me. So it's a bit less peaceful, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it was, um, the isolation of lockdown has been very really difficult. And I think that now we're beginning to open up, I think when we can reconnect and talk about our mental health, like you say, with people that we never even thought about that, I think that's a real beautiful thing that we can start to reconnect and to sort of build up knowing what we do now about the importance of connection and doing things that we used to do and really just, you know, taking stock of things that really matter to us. So yeah, I'm currently researching a book into kind of like the sequel to this one, where this was treatments for depression over time. I really want to focus on this kind of core period of adolescence and childhood of, you know, where do these mental illnesses take root? And rather than focusing on the sort of like the dire, like adolescents are more depressed than they've ever been. And they're more anxious than they've ever been actually focus on what can be done. So, you know, for my own experience, you know, what happened with me and depression, my cousin with schizophrenia, my other family members with alcohol, like this is a core period of our lives where these things can take effect and sort of affect our adulthood throughout our lives. So I'm kind of, yeah, researching the different interventions that can be so key to kind of taking people away from what become what could become a chronic and debilitating mental illness and directing it towards something that is more, yeah, like you say, healing and healthful. Wonderful. Well, we're extremely lucky to have a writer of your quality and also of your courage, not just to go into these places, but to share them and to take us there for all of our benefit and enlightenment. I wish you the huge good luck with your next book. It will be another cracker. The current cracker is a cure for darkness and mine is heavy light. I've been Horatio Clare and that was Alex Riley. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank Thank you. you for your time and attention. doing right now. Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.